This week, James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, and there's two parts. This week, I'm going to look at why we seek to restore or turn back someone who has fallen away. Next week is how we turn back someone who has wandered away or fallen away. I believe that it's important to know the why before we go into the how, because it gives us the right motivation and the right attitude when we talk to people who are struggling with sin. So the big picture here, what I want to communicate with you guys today, is that these last two verses in James are about restoring broken relationships. And it's not just a couple of verses. This is the main theme of the entire Bible. God has been in the business of restoring relationships ever since the Garden of Eden. So it should be a a good study as we go back into the Old Testament and we go back through and we trace it through. So let's start with our memory verse. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of those words. May we never, ever forget them. To count all joy when we fall into trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. And we need to let patience have its perfect work, that may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We need to be mature. That's what you're trying to do. Make us grow up, not be little kids anymore, but to be mature, strong, capable adult Christians, growing up and ready to do the Master's will. So we just pray that we will have your word in our hearts, we will have overcome the evil one, and we will have a deep relationship with you. In Jesus' name. So, let's read James 5, 19-20. It says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, again, this is the big picture. And I'm going to go back to one of the names of God. You know, God reveals himself by different names in the Old Testament. One of the names of God in the Old Testament is, I am the Lord who heals you. So my goal today is to show you God's character, to use the scriptures to show you God's character, what his heart is towards us, so that we can have the right mode of attitude when we seek to restore someone who is sinning back into relationship with God and men. The other thing is when we want to come back, we need to have the right understanding of how God looks at us. Otherwise, it's harder for us to come back too. So if we don't approach the struggling brother with compassion and humility, we can do more damage than good because we end up condemning them. We don't have that compassionate heart that God does. So it's important to know why God is so intent on bringing us wandering sheep, us backsliders, as we're called in the Old Testament, back into the fold, back into fellowship with himself and each other. So I want us to understand today and have a greater understanding of just how compassionate, gracious, merciful, patient, and loving God is toward his struggling children. 
So let's read Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. It's God revealing himself to Moses as, I am the Lord who heals you. So it reads like this. He said, If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commandments and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And this is a hard word to say in Hebrew, but it's Yahweh Rapha. It's got that, you know, German's got roll of the tongue there. So this Hebrew word translated heal is to sew together, to mend, cure, recover, to be repaired, rebuild, to make whole. One skilled in medicine, a healer, a doctor, a surgeon, and to comfort. So in the context of this verse, it's about physical health. God promised physical blessings under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, to the Israelites. If they obeyed him, they would experience good health, protection from the enemies, good crops, material prosperity, etc. But we're not under that law anymore. We're not under the old covenant. We're in the church age. We're in the new covenant. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 20? We live under the new covenant. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So, what's the difference between living under the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, the church under the new covenant enjoys spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1.3 God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, today, if I don't do something right. The locusts don't come into my room and eat my meal, you know. I don't experience drought, you know. It doesn't not rain just on me. I don't experience being kicked out of my land because of my sin. And, yeah, and so basically we, we don't have the same, we're not under the same kind of way of... God dealing with his people. God deals with us differently now. Another thing to understand I think is important is that material prosperity is no longer a proof of God's blessing or approval on a person's life. It's not a heavenly blessing. It's a temporary blessing. It doesn't mean money is bad, but it's not a proof of God's blessing or approval on a person's life. Now, under the New Covenant... We're disciplined by God in different ways. You think about how God disciplines us. We lose the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, and instead we become insecure. It's one of the opposites of having peace is become insecure. We cut ourselves off from the love of God and instead we live in fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. We cease to experience the joy of our salvation and instead experience sorrow of heart. Our relationships with others suffer and there are other negative spiritual, emotional, mental, and physiological and practical consequences for our sin. So basically, we're failing to enjoy many of our heavenly or spiritual blessings and we suffer many unnecessary and often serious wounds as a result of our rebellion.
So that's what it's like under the new covenant. So how do we apply God's revelation to Moses, I am the Lord who heals you? Well, it goes beyond physical healing, and it includes God's great and unlimited ability and his desire to heal us of the consequences of our sin and restore us back to relationship with himself and each other. So in the New Testament, the word heal is often used in relation to sin because sin in the scriptures is considered a disease and it kills you. So God wants to heal us. So I just go through the definitions of the word heal again. It's to sew together, to mend, cure, recover, repair, rebuild, be made whole, be skilled in medicine, a healer, a doctor, a surgeon, and to comfort. So what does this look like for us today, practically? Well, God will heal the heart who sought love, acceptance, and affection in an illegitimate and or abusive relationship. God will repair the damage done to a friendship broken because of gossip. God will sew up the broken marriage torn apart by adultery or dysfunction. God will restore trust in the person who compulsively lied. God will rebuild the abused person's broken heart, soul, and mind. God the surgeon will cut out the cancer of envy and jealousy and instead give them a generous heart toward others. God will make whole the person who is crippled by the guilt of abortion or other sin. God provides the cure for someone who gossips. God recovers the person lost to addictions. God comforts those who have suffered loss. So this is all a part of God's revelation of himself as I am the Lord who heals you. Now, why do I struggle? And the question is, does God really understand what I'm going through? And we need to understand that he does. Exodus 15.26 implies that God wants us to live in a place of blessing, which we can only experience when we're walking with him, submitted to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But what the problem is, is we often choose to be dissatisfied with the heavenly blessings that God freely gives us. And what do we do instead? We seek the short-term gratification and pleasure of sin, and therefore we have this struggle. We fight a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil, 1 John 2.16. However, God is merciful and he wants to heal the break in our relationship with him and others caused by sin. Now, God knows we've got to struggle. It says that in the Bible, there's going to be a war in Galatians. It says that there's a war in our heart, in our mind, in Romans as well. We still have our sinful nature attached to us. But through God's, or Christ's, substitutionary death on the cross, God has made a way for all of us, including us believers who have sinned and fallen away, to come back to him. We experience this reconciliation by confessing, repenting, submitting, and choosing to draw near to God. And we've learned about that before. Now, what is God's heart towards me? And this is the main thing for today. I'll put it this way. Like a loving parent, God is incredibly grieved, but not angry, when his adopted children rebel against him. So I'll say that again. Like a loving parent, God is incredibly grieved, but not angry, when his adopted children rebel against him. When you fail and again and again, he's not angry, he's grieved. Like a loving parent, his greatest desire is for his children to come to their senses. You know the story of the prodigal son? 
father's waiting, he's looking, he's looking. He's not angry, he's grieved. He's missing his son. God's missing us when we're away from him. God is waiting for us to confess and forsake, that is, repent of our sins, so the relationship can be healed or restored. So when we do, what does the Father do? He runs to meet us. And what's his greatest joy? To bless us once again. What did he do to the prodigal son? He put the sandals on his feet, the ring on his finger, killed the fatted calf, had the party. God just wanted to come back into fellowship with his son. And to be able to bless him as a father. That's what God wants. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But we could write, Draw near to God because God earnestly desires to draw near to you. It's not like, draw near to God and God will then have to draw near to you. <laughs> it's draw near to God because God wants to draw near to you. So like the father in the parable, God is waiting and watching for his wayward, wandering, backslidden child to return home. God's heart is for you and he loves you. So one thing essential to true repentance, and which is different to remorse, is to understand that we break God's heart when we turn away from him. One of the most vulnerable verses in the Bible where God makes himself vulnerable and reveals the hurt in his heart is Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. He was crushed. He was broken. So while it's true that we do much damage to ourselves and others when we sin and reject our Abba Father, the greatest offence is against God. He is the one who has hurt the most. So when we don't comprehend or understand that when we sin we crush God's heart, then when we repent it's just remorse. We're just sorry for how it's affected us and we're not really sorry for how it's affected God. True repentance happens when we understand how our sin affects God and we are truly sorry for crushing his heart and breaking his heart when we rebel or sin against him. And then it becomes all about God and not about us. So that's true repentance, when we understand how we've hurt God. Because he loves us so much and therefore he's hurt so deeply. So listen to some of the promises that God has given to his wayward, wandering and backsliding children. And that includes me. <laughs> See how gentle and compassionate God is toward us when we fail, when we turn our backs on him. God is like a mother holding her newborn baby. The demanding, completely selfish and crying baby can give nothing in return to the mother. But the mother has an unbreakable bond with her newborn. There's nothing she wouldn't do for her child and she has unending patience. She'll change that nappy as many times as it needs changing. You know, She'll feed the baby whenever it needs feeding. So as newborn Christians, we don't have much to offer God because we are still so selfish. But as we grow and mature, we become more able to enjoy a closer love relationship with our Abba or Daddy Father. So some of the verses from the Old Testament which illustrate this. Psalm 30 verses 2 to 5. O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Remember what's our theme for today? What's the name of God? I am the God who heals you. Yeah? So, O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. 
and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favour is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So, when we experience God's discipline, and God does discipline those he loves, it hurts. Hebrew says that it hurts when God disciplines us. But, look at the context here, it's only for a moment. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and his favour is for life. It's forever. So God is always for us. He may have to discipline us, and that breaks his heart, as it does any parent when they have to discipline their kids. But God will do that for our good. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. And there's another verse there in Psalm 147 verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. And that wounds literally is sorrows. He bandages their sorrows. So again, it's not just physical healing. It's our emotional, spiritual, mental healing as well. So God is really, really gracious and he continues to heal us of our usually self-inflicted wounds. Now, going back to Psalm 103 there, I've just written this down. It says, God knows that we fail because we are frail. (laughs) God knows that we go bust because we are only made of dust. So remember that. We fail because we're frail. We go bust because we're only made of dust. But that doesn't excuse us for our sin, though. What it does instead, it teaches us a very painful lesson that we all must learn. And this is by far the hardest lesson to learn as a Christian, right? That by ourselves or without God, we can do nothing. John 15.5 Our pride and our confidence in our own strength and abilities must be destroyed. We must learn to die to ourself. This is what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16.24 Now, if you've thought about crucifixion, When you take up your cross, it's a one-way journey. You don't ever come back. Jesus is asking us to be committed to this road of crucifying our sinful nature, putting it to death. Because if we don't do that, we'll never learn to depend upon God. We'll keep on depending on ourselves. But if we crucify our sinful nature and don't depend on ourselves, then we start depending on God's limitless resources that he's already made available to us by his Holy Spirit living inside of us. So God's given it to us already. But we don't use it because we're using our other resources which are inadequate for the task. Very inadequate. Fleshly resources. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus said. So in Second Peter chapter 1, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life, it says. 
And our responsibility, it says there also, is to respond to God's promises. Now, what are the consequences of wandering from God or backsliding? And there's a verse in Proverbs which does a brilliant job of summing this whole thing up in two lines. Proverbs 14.14 The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. So the backslider in heart, where's the problem start? In his heart. Okay, Sin is always a problem of the heart. And he's filled with his own ways. So when we choose to follow God, we'll go to the second line first, but a good man will be satisfied from above. When we choose to follow God, submit to God, and obey God, being motivated by his love for us, we will be satisfied from above. We begin to experience complete and eternal satisfaction and contentment. In Psalm 16.11 it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, what God gives us, the world cannot take away. We are safe and we are secure in our relationship with God. And John 10, 28-29 says, Jesus holds us in his hand and the Father holds us in his hand. It's like a hand over a hand and we're in his hands. We're safe and secure. However, the first line of that verse says, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. If we want to be like Adam and Eve in the garden when they ate the forbidden fruit, when they were seeking to find fulfillment and pleasure outside of God's will, then we will be filled with our own ways. Like Adam and Eve experienced, a passing pleasure of sin will very quickly give way to broken relationships, blame, disgrace, shame, guilt, sorrow, and much needless or unnecessary pain. So, again, a lot of needless and unnecessary pain. And that's why God doesn't want us to sin, because God grieves when we are hurt. We don't want our kids to be hurt. God doesn't want us to be hurt. And the same message is repeated but differently in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. I, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. <laughs> you know what? Most of the time, God doesn't have to do anything but just let us experience the natural consequences of our sin. And that's usually enough. So, now, the solution to wandering away from God. Again, this is throughout the entire Bible. Listen to the key words in the following Old Testament passages. And the truth we have learned about confession, repentance, submission, dependence, and drawing near to God in James are not new concepts and not New Testament concepts. The solution to backsliding and wandering away hasn't changed since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. So if you're in a place where you've rebelled against God, these verses, I believe, will give you more insight into how to better repent or how to repent and pray when you do repent. So the first one is the easiest one. Psalm 41 verse 4. A prayer of repentance. It says, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Don't you love that? Nice and easy. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Again, as we were talking about before, 
I am the Lord who heals you. It's not just physical healing, it's spiritual, emotional, mental healing as well. So here, the healing is referring to the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of our relationship with God. And what do we read or study in James 5.16? Confess your trespasses to another and pray for another that you may be healed. It's spiritual healing. Most of the time. So an important element of true or genuine confession and repentance is that the understanding we will never deserve God's forgiveness, his mercy and his grace. It's undeserved. That's what grace is. That's what it means. That's why we pray, Lord, be merciful to me. And the first line in Psalm 41 verse 4 is, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. And this is when we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be healed. But please be merciful to me. Please heal me anyway. And this is where we need to understand God's love for us. I don't deserve to be healed. But you're going to heal me anyway because you want to. And that's really beautiful. The prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18.13 And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So let's go through some more prayers of repentance in the Bible. So the first one I'll read now is uh, Jeremiah 3, 12 and 13. Therefore go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says. O Israel, my faithless people. Now we can put our own names in there. O David, my faithless child. Come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, admit that you rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshipping idols under every green tree. Confess that you have refused to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. See what God is trying to get us to do? Come home to me again, for I am merciful. But to do that, we need to confess that we have sinned against God. Admit that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. Confess that you have refused to listen to my voice. So even if our sin is directed towards another person, it's still against God. You think of David's prayer in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Well, David had almost raped Bathsheba and murdered her husband. That was definitely sins against other people, but in God's eyes, it's against him because they are God's creation. Another important element or part of our confession is our submission to Christ's lordship over our lives. And we read in Jeremiah 3.22, God says, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. And the people respond with submission, and they say, Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. The Lord there is Adonai, it means master. And so they're submitting to God as their master. So that's another part of true confession is we submit ourselves to the Lord to walk in obedience with him. And another element of true repentance, another aspect of it, we find in the book of Isaiah. We must be willing to admit that our own human resources and strength cannot save us or help us 
And it is precisely because we relied on our own strength and resources that we ended up in the mess that we were in. And this is a fantastic passage in Hosea. It's Hosea 14, 1-4. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. If you say to him, I put the words if you in there, if you say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Assyria cannot save us, nor can our war horses. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. Then, and I put the word then in there, then the Lord says, or promises, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. So, if we confess, the Lord promises to heal. It's a promise. So all we need to do is by faith confess. And look at what the people are saying. Assyria cannot save us, nor can our war horses. Never again will we say to the idols we have made. So these are the things they were trusting in. These are the things they're looking to find satisfaction in. To make them feel happy, to make them achieve their goals and get what they wanted. So if we are willing to confess and humbly admit our dependence on God, then God will be faithful to heal us. Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. That's another thing we need to be healed of, our faithlessness. Now what's the New Testament version of this? 1 John 1 9. Yeah? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah? Now, it gets even better. This is a beautiful verse. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. And this reminds me of Romans 5.20. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You see, God hasn't changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. Only God has the supernatural ability to choose to not remember our sins. And you find that in Jeremiah 31.34. When God forgives, he forgets. Isn't that cool? When God forgives, he forgets. He chooses not to remember. And as a result, he will never remind us of that sin again. It's gone. It's not a part of your relationship with God anymore. It won't affect you anymore. His anger will be gone forever. Because he's not aware of it anymore. It's literally gone. God can do that. We can't. We can't choose to wipe something from memory. But God can. So God doesn't hold grudges. God never holds a grudge. And if we are being reminded of a past sin, then where's that coming from? Satan. Because it's not from God. God has forgotten it. He's chosen deliberately to not remember he's forgotten it in that sense. And so when we have these reminders of our past sin, it's Satan trying to condemn us. But in God's eyes, it's gone. He doesn't even know about it anymore. So these verses coming up are really awesome to me. They've really helped me. They reveal God's heart and the people's correct response to God. Jeremiah 3, 19-25, from the New Living Translation. 
and this is God speaking, I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to you calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me. Just meditate on that verse, verse 19. Just read it again to yourself. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I look forward to your calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me. That is God's heart for us. He wants to be in relationship with us. He loves us. But you have been unfaithful to me, in verse 20, you people of Israel. And again, we can put a name in here. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, what do the people do? Voices are heard high on the windswept mountains, the weeping and pleading of Israel's people. For they have chosen crooked paths and have forgotten the Lord their God. So the painful consequences of turning away from God. And then God says, My wayward children, says the Lord, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. This is the invitation, verse 22. My wayward children, says the Lord, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. And what's the response of the people in the second half of the verse? Yes, we're coming, the people reply, for you are the Lord our God. And then it continues, and this is the people admitting to God that what they were doing before was wrong. Our worship of idols on the hills and our religious orgies on the mountains are a delusion. They do not bring us happiness. They do not bring us contentment. It's, it's a waste of time. Only in the Lord our God will Israel ever find salvation. From childhood we have watched as everything our ancestors worked for, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, was squandered on a delusion. It was wasted. It was lost. Everything they'd worked so hard to get was destroyed, taken away. Let us now lie down in shame and cover ourselves with dishonor, for we and our ancestors have sinned against the Lord our God. From our childhood to this day, we have never obeyed him. So here's the humility. We're going to lay down. We're going to mourn over our sin. So, to summarize God's heart toward us, and these are the things that you might want to put on your wall, God is merciful. That means that God delights to forgive. And we read that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Secondly, God desires and promises to heal our unfaithfulness. Hosea 14, verse 4. Thirdly, God's love knows no bounds. There is no sin too great that God can't forgive. And that's Hosea 14, verse 4. God's anger is gone forever. God chooses to forget forgiven sins, and there is no more 
remembrance or condemnation of those sins and therefore no more condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's Hosea 14 verse 4 and Romans 8 verse 1. And the fifth one, God's heart to his faithless people is, come home to me again. Notice the word again. Come home to me again. All right, there's always again. It's never too late. Maybe circle that word again. (laughs) That's Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 12. And number six, our Heavenly Father understands our weakness and is tender and compassionate toward us. Remember, we fail because we're frail. We bust because we're made of dust. Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14. God's desire is to bless his children. Jeremiah 3.19, I'll just read it. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my children, as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. God wants to bless us. It's not that he's under obligation. It's, It's his first desire is to bless us. And number eight, God desires relationship with us. It says in Jeremiah 3.19, I looked forward to you calling me Father, and I wanted you never to turn away from me. So God desires to have this. He's jealous for our relationship, our love. So we can be blessed. Now, to summarize the characteristics of true confession and repentance, as we've read in the Old Testament, and it also correlates and agrees with the New Testament, we must ask for forgiveness. So bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him. So we must be willing to humble ourselves. And that's Hosea 14 verse 2 and Matthew 5 verse 3. Secondly, we will be or should be brokenhearted over our sin. We should be mourning over our sin. So if we're truly confessing and repenting, we're truly turning from our sin, we will be mourning over our sin. We will be brokenhearted over our sin. And the verses there are Psalm 147, verse 3, Matthew 5, verse 4, and Isaiah 57, verse 15. And thirdly, we must always remember that we will never deserve forgiveness and restoration back into right relationship with God. It's all grace. So don't try to earn it. Don't try and be good enough. Don't try and do some stuff to make yourself acceptable to God. It's all grace. We cannot work for it. Hosea 14, 2 and Ephesians 2. 8 and 9, we're saved by grace, not by works, nothing you can boast about. 4. We must recognize our complete dependence on God. We must be led and empowered by the Spirit. In Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And also Hosea 14, 3. Number 5. We will praise God for his abundant love, grace and mercy. So one of the characteristics of those who have truly repented is they will be praising God. Why are we praising God? Because we're trusting Him. We trust that whatever is happening to us is what's best for us and therefore instead of panicking we can praise. Yeah. Number six, we come fully submitted to God's Lordship over our lives. Jeremiah 3.22 we call him Lord, Adonai, Master, the boss. And so true confession is making God once again Lord over our lives. Making him the authority. 
Number seven, we recognize that our sin is against God and God alone. So true confession, true repentance is understanding that the person most hurt by our sin is God. God is crushed by our adulterous heart. Our sin hurts God the most. And that was Psalm 41 verse 4, 51 verse 4, and Ezekiel chapter 6 verse 9. And I've got some other passages there for you to read. Isaiah 57, 15 to 21. Jeremiah 3, 9 to chapter 4, verse 2, and Hosea 14, 1 to 9. So in your own time, you can go through those and there are other passages where the people are confessing to God. So now we're going to have communion. And the main message I want to give you is submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. And if God is controlling you, then the devil isn't. If God is controlling you, then the devil isn't. That's why we submit to God, and we can then resist the devil. And going back to what we've been talking about a lot, 2 Timothy 2.21, we want to be fit for God's service. We want to be a vessel of honor. To do that, we must remember all that Jesus has done for us and the love he has for us. We must be compelled and motivated by the love of Christ. And it's only if we understand how much God loves us, that we will be willing to submit to God's lordship over our lives. And the more we understand the depth of God's love for us, Romans 5.8, then the more we will be willing to submit and obey. And that's why we always need to come back to the cross. That's why communion is so important, because it reminds us of the reason why God should be our first love. The cross is God's ultimate demonstration of unconditional agape love. So there is no greater demonstration of God's love. There can be no greater demonstration of God's love. And so a motivation for confessing, forsaking sin is, 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them, and rose again. What's the right motive for surrendering, for changing our ways? Because I have a better life? Because I have more friends? Because things will work out better for us and we will get less pain? No. It's got to be love. Our motive for surrendering to the Lord needs to be love. If you're going to change, it's got to be for the right reason. And that's why I'm talking about this as we take communion, because communion speaks to us of the cross. It's the ultimate demonstration. There can be no greater demonstration of someone loving us than giving their own life in our place. And that's what God did. So when it comes to those things you're struggling with, and there's lots of motivations that we can use, or I don't like doing this, it makes me feel bad, or whatever, but hang on a second. God loves me. This is hurting him. If I love someone, I don't want to hurt them. Our motivation for changing, for confessing, for overcoming sin is love. If we really love someone, then we won't want to hurt them. And that motivation as we grow to love God, become stronger and stronger. And then we just won't want to sin anymore because our love for God is just too strong. 